Hear now as I read for you out of Acts chapter 13, starting with verse 32 through 43. Hear now the very word and gospel of the Lord. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it was written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are here to proclaim that we believe your truth, that your truth is true, that he is risen and risen indeed, that there is forgiveness of sins, and that you reign forevermore. Father, help us to hear this encouragement, this factual reminder of the reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, and help us to see that continuance of his power over sin and death, that as we see corruption all around and within our own hearts, may we continue in hope to continue with faith and grace to long and look for your resurrected power to occur. And let us be warned of judgment. Let us be sober that we would have trembling rejoicing of this reality, that we would, one, continue to repent of our sins, and that we would long to proclaim this salvation to a corrupt and dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
know I've probably mentioned this before, but my observations lately has had me see that it seems like a lot of things in the forest, and I think it has to do with some kind of boring beetle, that a lot of things seem to be dying. A lot of trees are falling around, at least in our forest. And um, and everywhere I go, when I travel throughout the East Coast, I I seem to see more fallen trees and things dying. Another thing that I've noticed, and especially on the last few trips that Knox and I have been going on, is I'm going to a lot of cities and places where I've traveled before. Even as a kid, I used to go to some of these cities and see certain landmarks and certain buildings. And it's interesting that when you get older and it's not an introduction to you, you can start seeing how they are wearing and you can see how things are falling apart. You can see cracks. I even notice in our home now that it's about 12 years, I'm seeing more cracks in the home. Things are falling apart, it seems. Things continue to, to die all around us. And it, maybe, maybe it's some kind of negative posture that I'm in or whatever, but I, I, I see things looking like they're corrupt and dead and kind of hopeless in of themselves. I shared and confided with my family and another family this week that being a pastor um, has given me a very grim look at mankind. I get to the point as I look at the sin in my own heart matched with the promises and the proclamation of God's word and I see the sin in other people's lives, I'm like, man, we are a rough bunch. (laughs) We are in a lot of trouble. Uh, When we think about every bit of news that we hear from our own politicians to others, and as we hear different events occurring throughout the world, it seems like there's always this continual thread. There is tremendous corruption, death, wickedness, sin, and rot everywhere we look. How's that for a an Easter morning introduction. (laughs) This particular passage is not removed from that. If you look at this particular passage, there are three things. I don't really have three points, but three highlights that you have to notice because it's what Luke wrote here in this particular narrative. One of the things that you see very clearly in the very beginning, which is a lot more encouraging than my introduction to this portion of the passage, which, mind you, this is a portion of a longer sermon that Paul is giving, but it is full of reminders that Jesus was raised from the dead. That is a very encouraging thing to see that. It says that multiple times he comes back to that, and it's very emphatic and dealt with in a very factual way. This is not meant to be some kind of metaphor or poetic concept. This is a report of a reality that they had seen with their own eyes that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But another thing that might seem to highlight and maybe even seem overpowering in light of that is the continual repetition of the word corruption. You can see it there over and over again. There is this reminder in the context of Jesus' resurrection that Jesus will not return to corruption. And we also are taught through the scriptures that his body is not seeing corruption as we do. And that David himself, that now his body is facing corruption and rot. There's probably not much left of it other than the bones of David wherever he is laid. To rest. 
So we have to highlight and be reminded of this corruption. And I believe that as we are given this passage, that it is very important for us to not only think about the corruption then of David, but to be reminded of the corruption now. And not just the imminent corruption of our own physical bodies, but the reality that corruption exists. And inside of that reminder and that keeping on throwing it back in our face, that it's to see that reality of the resurrection is not just a past tense event, but that it is a living and active thing for the very purposes that Jesus is alive. And so when we think about corruption, when we think about sin, especially for us, for those who believe that the primary purposes and point of this is given to us there in verse 37 or 38, that he has given us the forgiveness of our sins. So it's good. Just as we begin our worship with a time of confession of sin, it is good for us to be reminded of that corruption because we're going to be reminded of it later on when we're out walking around and living out our day this week. Or as we face our challenges and work or seeking for work, we are going to be reminded of the continual presence of corruption. So may it be that you are reminded of the current reality that Jesus' death and resurrection is still applicable to that corruption now. But we know that not everyone believes. We know that not everyone has that hope that there will be a resurrection from that particular corruption. So the third thing that is highlighted in this particular passage is that God is still a God of justice. That he is still a God of judgment. That now the appointed power of judgment has been given to this one who reigns over death and sin, who is Jesus Christ. That he will return to gather those who are his, who are those who have received his grace and power of life. And that he is also coming back to bring forth judgment. Now, this particular passage, a portion of the passage, ends in judgment. And that's a challenging thing. Most pastors want to leave their sermon not with corruption and judgment. But this is how it's going to be left for us today as a reminder, as the writer here points us to Habakkuk, which is a very negative passage and a positive passage about God's judgment and justice. So the three things here to look for as we go through this passage is to definitely and to be encouraged that Jesus was raised from the dead. That it is good news that He was raised from the dead. And that He will not go back to corruption, but that corruption does exist, that it is continuing to exist in David's body as it continues to exist in those that we know that have passed and everyone who has died And for us, when we die, our bodies will see corruption. But we will not be left to that corruption. That there is a hope because Jesus was raised from the dead, that though he will not see it, his body will not see corruption, that as our bodies do, unless he returns before we die, that he will raise us up from that corruption. And he will continue to do that in our lives as we live today but to also to see that judgment, that impending judgment. It is the motivator for us as we present the Gospels to others, but it should also be the motivator that encourages us 
in God's grace. Because the distinction is, and it is our hope that all of us who are here, that we do believe that this judgment is not going to fall on us if we are those who repent and believe and continue in His grace. That we have His life in us and the hope for eternal life before us. So yes, everything is dying. Everything is corrupt, except Jesus. Jesus is the only one. He is the only hope that we have. There is nothing out there apart from Jesus that we can have any hope because without Jesus, everything is dying forever for good. But with Jesus, who is living, who is alive, we have a hope that even the death past and the death to come will not remain as death for those who believe. And this is good news. That is one reason why knowing this passage would end on a bad note, I definitely wanted to highlight and even repeat the end of last week's sermon that this is good news being proclaimed here as we see in verse 32. I'm here to bring you the good news. All of this is good news. All this reminder of the corruption and death that we have to face today is still there for the purposes of contrasting the good news that God has promised to the fathers has been fulfilled for the children, which is the Jews, and for all who believe that by raising Jesus, we have the hope of forgiveness of sins. Now, there are three particular passages that are given in random form, in, in rapid form here in this proclamation, in this sermon, that if you are not familiar with these passages, they may not seem totally clear to how this fits into Paul's proclamation of the gospel. I'm not going to go through and read all of those for the sake of time, but I would encourage you, most of you probably have reference passages or reference Bibles that will point out to where these passages come from in the Psalms, also in Isaiah, and in the fourth passage in Habakkuk. But I do want to highlight these particular things. Because after we are given this proclamation of the good news, and that God has promised and fulfilled this grace to us, and that we have this reminder that Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul is solidifying this proclamation to the hearers there by highlighting these particular passages from what they had as the Scriptures then and what is considered now as the Old Testament. That Jesus is the begotten Son that is mentioned in Psalm chapter 2. We see in chapter 2 verse 7 that there is this promise of wrath to come, but that Jesus will reign over it. We see here in Psalm 2 that God laughs at those who deride the truth. He derides them, those who will go against him and rage against him and conspire against him. God actually laughs at them and mocks them, that he speaks to them in wrath and fury because he promises that he is going to set forth his king that will reign over and beyond their very kingdoms. So as we are given this good news, the passage that he first goes to goes to a passage where there is the reminder of the posture of the world to be against God, to be full of corruption, to conspire against God, to be haughty over God, and that the response to that is is because God knows the future and has the power over what is to come. He laughs at their scoffing, 
their rebellion, and their plans because he basically is clarifying and laughing that this corruption will not stand. That their kingdom of corruption will not last. That their kingdoms of death will not continue. That his king, that he sets forth, his begotten son, will break, dash, destroy this destruction. That Jesus himself will come and destroy the kingdoms of destruction. That by taking on death himself and dying himself, that he will destroy death. And then there's a proclamation and a warning that kings should be wise, that they should fear this reality, that they should fear this judgment, and that when they are given this truth, and if they have this fear, they should even rejoice with trembling. I remember preaching that particular psalm, and what a tremendous phrase and a tremendous admonition to us to rejoice with trembling. If we ever get to a place where we are rejoicing with haughtiness, then we're not rejoicing the right way. We are to go into this rejoicing with trembling. We are to be reminded of his judgment. We are to be reminded of his justice. And we're even told in the psalm, that we, the, the call to worship psalm that we had this morning, that we find refuge inside of that. We cannot separate from God the reality of his judgment and his justice and have any really reason to have rejoicing. We have no reason to rejoice in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus unless we remember to rejoice in, with trembling and fear, understanding the reality of his wrath. Proclamation or the admonition warning goes on in Psalm 2 that they should do this lest they receive his anger. That if they do not come to this understanding where they need to rejoice with trembling, that they will receive his anger and that they would perish, that they would be destroyed, that they would face corruption and wrath. And then it ends with a reminder that blessed be the one who finds refuge in the very one who will bring judgment. You don't typically run to danger whenever you see danger. If you hear a loud noise, you run away from it. I remember even on our vacation recently, we were in the elevator and, and we had everybody on the elevator and we got to the fifth floor where our room was and it made this loud noise and you're enclosed in the elevator, but everyone in that elevator wanted to get out of that elevator <laughs> as quickly as possible because we're thinking it might not stay on the fifth floor very long. So as soon as the doors opened, we were out and how many people went back down in that elevator that night? No one. <laughs> we took all five flights back down and back up multiple times until we finally got the nerve after we found out that it was repaired to get back in there. But here in that particular passage, we are called to go to the one where the danger is. To go to the one who is bringing forth the judgment. That there is refuge in going to the avenger the one who is going to be the judge, the executioner of the judgment, because it is also the one that is the judge who has received our judgment. There's nothing quite like that. 
that we can even make a comparison to. We normally do not run in that way, but we have this reminder because this one who has now won and accomplished this role as judge was the one who received judgment. Continuing on. So we have right after this reminder of Psalm 2, this wondrous verse. And I really want to just let this soak in in verse 34. It says, as for the fact... And I, I looked up the Greek there, trying to figure out, what, is, what does this mean? It means what it says, the fact, the reality, the truth, that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. No more to turn back to death. He will not need to die again. He will not die again. He will not remain dead. This is a fact. R.C. Sproul states in his little booklet called, Who is Jesus?, it says, here is the watershed of human history where the misery of the race is transformed into grandeur. Here is the Kerjama, the proclamation of the early church, was born with the cry, He is risen. We can view this event as a symbol, a lovely tale of hope. We can reduce it to a moralism that declares, as one preacher put it, The meaning of the resurrection is that we can face the dawn of each new day with dialectical courage. It's not meant to be some kind of cute little motivation idea for you that he rising from the dead is just some kind of concept to encourage you that you can have a good day. The New Testament, continuing on with R.C.'s statement, says the New Testament proclaims the resurrection as a sober historical fact. The early Christians were not interested in a dialectical symbol, but concrete realities. Authentic Christianity stands or falls with the space-time event of Jesus' resurrection. This is a fact. Even though there's a lot of literary devices that God uses in his words to teach us, to encourage us, to admonish us and correct us, that at this particular moment, and by this particular author particularly, being Luke, who it was known to be a physician, and who was aware of understanding the science behind death, that this was a fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. And even as we've heard so far in the readings that we had in prayer this morning, that John says, we touched, we saw, we heard. It was manifested in life. These were scientific things. This wasn't metaphorical touching or hearing or seeing. The reality is, the fact is, And he has made it clear, he's using beyond just scientific theory that could have been tested. He showed by the witnesses of a multitude of people, but also the power of the Spirit, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And you need to be encouraged in that. Satan says, oh yeah, you can believe in the idea of the resurrection. Yeah, that'd be great. What a nice pretty idea you know we have flowers that raised from the ground so jesus yeah he kind of his spirit his idea his teaching his love his principles they've they still live on with us today 
That's what Satan would want us to hope in and to think in, that it's just like any other kind of person or life, any other kind of teaching of goodness, that that is what resonates today. But here in this particular passage and in the proclamation of God's truth, and hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will believe, this is fact. It is the reality. The Apostle Paul, this is speaking again, R.C. Sproul in the book, who is Jesus, he, he spells out, Paul spells out the clear and irrefutable consequences of a resurrectionless Christianity. If Christ is not raised, he is reasoned, we are left with the following list of conclusions. One, our preaching is futile. I, I don't know why you give money to the church. <laughs> I don't even need to be here. James, just forget about proclaiming the gospel. All of you, just give up. Don't even be thinking about that anymore. Our faith, every single one of you are wasting your time being here today. Our faith is vain. We have misrepresented God. We are still in our sins. Our loved ones who have died, who believe, they have perished and will continue to perish. If all we have is the idea of hope, we are of all men most pitied. These six consequences sharply reveal the interconnection of the resurrection and the substance of Christianity. It is imperative that we understand that this is reality. And it is important for us to be reminded of this reality so that we may have hope, not into just what is to come, but what is occurring now as we observe corruption continuing to be in this life. Paul continues on in this particular passage by quoting out of Psalm, excuse me, out of Isaiah 55, when he goes back and talks about that this blessing of David, this promise of David that belongs to Jesus, Paul is highlighting that this is a blessing given to us, that this salvation through this Jesus is for us. Isaiah 55 highlights that to listen, to delight in this truth, to incline our ears toward this so that our souls may be lived. He's making that this blessing being delivered and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ is something that we need to long and hunger for because it is so that our soul may live. That God is making an everlasting covenant not in the person of David, but to David that it will come through David and be manifested in one to come, that this is steadfast love and it is for you, that God will bring glory to his kingdom. And then again, we are admonished once again to seek, to call, to forsake wickedness, to repent and return to the Lord. All of that is in Isaiah. The gospel is proclaimed in that passage in Isaiah 55 to tell us that there is a hope promised to come and that even for them who hear it, to turn their ears toward that and to repent and to believe, to hope into that promise to come. And here we are on this side where that promise has been revealed in Jesus and we are again to be reminded to repent and to believe and to hold on to this truth. Then he goes on. He says, Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. 
It is clear that Paul, and even Luke, as he keeps bringing this back up, that he wants to assure us and to give us a security of understanding that Jesus is secure, that his resurrected life is secure, that because he will not see corruption, and he is not seeing corruption, and because he is living, there is an assurance and a security in Christ that he will continue to destroy corruption that is in us. This psalm is Psalm 16, where we are told that with this perseverance is a certain hope and refuge, that the Lord is our righteousness, that because the Holy One, the Righteous One is secure, we are to be secure. Sorrows, judgment, Destruction, again, corruption, which is one of the most root elements of the word corruption, is just destruction and rot that's both pertaining to death and to sin itself, will multiply on all of those who do not follow this God, who do not hope in this God, that sorrow will still come, that judgment will still come, that destruction will still come, that corruption will still come for those who do not believe. But for those who believe, the psalmist tells us, that gladness and rejoicing for our flesh and soul are secure. That it is not just our soul, but our flesh. That the reality of the risen, physical Lord Jesus Christ is a hope for our soul and for our own bodies that they will raise again from the dead. But then there is also again... This reminder that there is still judgment to come for those who do not believe. He says and reminds us that as we think about these promises, as we go back into the scriptures and we think about David and we think about how this is all coming to pass, we think about the psalm itself is written by David. Paul reminds the hearers that for David, after he served this purpose of proclaiming this gospel in his own generation, that he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption, that if we are just left and hoping in David, in the kingdom that he had, in those shadows and those pointers, if that is what we're hoping on to, there is nothing to hope in. But that with Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see this corruption. And so let it therefore be known to you, brothers, that through this Jesus, and then he changes the focus where it really needs to go, there is forgiveness of sins. That that is what is being proclaimed to you. And that by everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the highlight of the passage. This is the pinnacle of the passage. That all of this talk about being raised from the dead and all this talk about corruption and all this talk about judgment is to highlight for us that for those who believe in this factual reality that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is victory over not just physical corruption, but spiritual corruption, which brings forth physical corruption, that he has power to both heal the body and to forgive sins. This is the greatest part of our hope. 
This is why we need to go to this level of depth of understanding because after this, and just like the hearers here in next week's passage, and just like when Jesus gave the first Passover meal with his disciples, you're going to sin right after that. That's one of the interesting things that if you look in how the gospel is presented, it's usually bookended with something very clear. As the gospel is presented in the center, that you see the sin leading up, and we see that we are still sinning afterward. We see Jesus giving himself as the Paschal Lamb. And what do the disciples do right after he does that? Does anybody know? What did, what did the disciples do after he gave the first communion, the first supper? It's not in every gospel account, but one gospel account particularly. What do they do? You can see, well, Judas got up and left, and we got that, but... They started talking about who are the greatest of them. They start bickering about who's going to be the greatest. It's amazing that right after that happens, just like that, they're there. In next week's passage that I'll be preaching from, right after that, they start fighting and they start getting jealous of Paul. And so it's important for us to understand that this reality is for the corruption that we see now. You need to not forget that there is still corruption now because we are longing and hoping that he is cleansing us from that corruption now and tomorrow until he decides to secure us finally with him in glory. That is the hope that we need today because it is going to be a hard reality if we're just all happy, cheery, and glowy now and we just kind of float out here and then somebody pulls out in front of us or one of your kids do something or your spouse says something that you don't like, then you're going to go, well, forget all of that. I don't know what all that was for. I'm not here to try to pump you up in false encouragement. I'm here to tell you that the resurrection is true then. Jesus being raised from the death dead then, back then is being affected now. And that is what you're to hope in in that moment as you look at that individual doing that thing or you're caught in your own sin. That as they look at you and go, what did you just say or what did you just do or what did you just think? That is the hope that we are to hold on to now. Because we are not that. It is already accomplished, but it is not yet in the sense that we need to be reminded of its present reality today in that corruption, both for the hope and the humility for ourselves that we do have this hope, but to be reminded that there are those who will not believe. He goes to Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk, it's, it's written differently than how Paul has proclaimed it here. Paul has that liberty to do so by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I was reading Habakkuk and I was kind of like, he was really kind of bringing it to them in a different way. It's a more direct kind of proclamation. In Habakkuk, you have Habakkuk calling out to God and saying, why are you not showing forth your judgment and your justice to the nations who are doing these things? You know, it's, it's Habakkuk complaining to God that you're not being just, you're not showing your justice. And then God kind of puts this passage toward, well, you know, the, there's going to be those who won't believe. And they're going to, you're going to, no matter what you tell them, they're still not going to believe. But here, Paul brings it kind of in front of them as an admonition to them. And this is where it's kind of challenging for us to grasp because we know that we can't conjure up belief, but we're being warned not to be in unbelief. And so as we consider this reality set forth 
before us. It is to perk us up and to wake us up. Do we believe this to be true? Do we believe that this is a reality? Or are we going to fall under this category of scoffing? Are you going to leave this place today and have that encounter of conflict? And are you going to treat one another and yourself as if the reality of the resurrection isn't true? Are you going to expect that whatever occurrence of sin will happen, that that is somehow outside of the scope of the reign of Jesus Christ for that individual who is proclaiming Jesus? Or for you, as Satan comes to you and tells you that you're a hopeless wretch that keeps going back to that same sin? The proclamation of this truth is to encourage you not to put this aside as some past historical moment, but a present reality. Jesus didn't go back to corruption. David is rotting in the grave with the hope of that eternal resurrection. But Jesus is alive today and he is reigning and his spirit is alive. That is one of the reasons why Acts is such an encouraging thing. It is active today and we can see those fruits being manifested in imperfect people, in imperfect ministries, instead of imperfect homes, continuing to reign over our hearts. An atheist acquaintance that I have, that I encountered during the time that I spent time in front of the abortion mill, this morning wrote in a very thoughtful, pointed way that he continues to see evangelicals as the most dangerous people in the world. Because of their inconsistencies, because of their hypocrisies, because of their wickedness. And I saw it in the first account, it ruffled me. You know, it always ruffles me to hear something like that. And I go, he's not wrong. <laughs> I don't think that they're necessarily the most dangerous people. That's even debatable. Maybe I could see that being the most dangerous people. There are a bunch of hypocrites, they are full of wickedness. But. His conclusions of the absence of God is not dependent upon that. The, the truth is, Jesus rose from the dead. He is our righteousness. It is true that we are full of corruption. And if that is what is our hope to proclaim to the world, then we are of all people to be pitied. That is, that the one who was righteous reigns over all things. And that, yes, judgment must come and will come. And it did come for those who believe. It is a grace to us to be reminded of this judgment for because we are reminded of what came upon the cross and we are humbled that the judgment to come will not fall upon us. And so as we face our sins, we are to go back to that same place, that same judge, that same refuge, that yes, the one who is going to bring that judgment is the one in which we find our hope. So as we face our own sins and other people's sins, we should be reminded of that hope. We should run to Jesus ourselves and quickly approach our brother or sister or person driving down the road with that grace and that reality that there is only hope in Jesus. We have as our 
Apostles' Creed as our profession that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, which was in the previous passage that I preached on last week, and that he was crucified by the hands of those who were considered to be his people, again, showing the hypocrisy. I mean, what greater hypocrisy is it that the people who have the promise of the Messiah is the one who kills the Messiah? Yeah, we're full of that. We can tell the world, yeah, we are the best hypocrites. We killed our own Savior. That's how good of a hypocrite level we are. We are at that level. And Jesus died and was buried. He descended into death. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Later on, here in just a moment, I'm going to encourage you to respond to my saying, Christ our Passover lamb was sacrificed for us. I encourage you to respond, therefore, let us keep the feast. We are reminded that he is the Passover lamb. He gave us this meal to remind us. And in this we see that he died, but he died at the hands of, of his own people who were given the promise and he was he did it for us but we are still called to come to this table after he rose from the dead we heard in the passage today that he ate and he drank with them this is a resurrected meal we are not this is not just a commemorative meal Knox and I went to D.C. and we saw statues of people who had died as a memory of what they were. But this is a memory of what he is. He is alive. And he is eating with his people. It is a meal of judgment. But as we are reminded in the lyrics of Andrew Peterson's song, Rise and Shine, is that the name of the song? And the curtain tore, and the saints awoke. The whole earth seemed to tremble from the fury of God's anger, or was it the fury of his love? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are furious. That you are furious to bring judgment against sin and death. And that fury that was poured out upon your Son is the fury of your love. The fury of your love for us. We do not understand why you would love us. But we thank and praise you that you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us praise our God for all that he provides.